you have your Bibles, you can turn uh, this morning to 1 Samuel, chapter 1. We're going to start a new uh, series uh, for the next few months. We're going to go through 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 1 through 7. Uh, I think this is a good companion to what we've been studying uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, because what we see in Samuel is actually uh, a good example of what it looks like for people who uh, live out the reality of Christ and His kingdom. Uh, I really like, I'm going to refrain from saying that it's one of my favorite books of the Bible, um, because even though it is, I say that a lot, I really like 1 Samuel. Um, I like the way that we're introduced to this story. One of the things that happens in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1 is we kind of pick up in the middle of this ongoing story that starts really with the people coming back from Egypt and inhabiting uh, the land of Canaan. Uh, And as you read the book of Joshua and you see the people going and and taking over the land and all the things that they did and the way that the Lord gave them the land. Um, uh, So you go through and you have this great book, Joshua, that's largely very positive and very exciting because you get to see the people doing what they're supposed to do. And yet at the end of Joshua, it ends with Joshua having to remind the people uh, that they are in covenant with Yahweh. And they must remain with him and be faithful to him. And that foreshadows everything that's going to come in the book of Judges. Uh, The book of Judges is one of the saddest books in all of the Bible because it shows the people in their turning away from God and their unfaithfulness. And yet, it shows God's faithfulness over and over and over to them. Well, uh, Ruth really is misplaced. Ruth should, should go right at the end of Proverbs. Uh, here, uh, it, it isn't supposed to go between Judges and, and 1 Samuel. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but Judges is supposed to end with this resounding note. When there was no king in the land, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And you're meant to ask the question, where is the king? Who is the king? Who is going to lead God's people so that they do not continue in their unfaithfulness to Yahweh. And you realize from that that the people need a king. And that's where First Samuel picks up. You're asking that question. Who is the king? And we see here in First Samuel that God's people are a mess. Uh, God's people are usually always a mess. This is the resounding story of the Bible. It's not that God's people have everything together. Over and over and over, what you read about in the scripture is that the people are terrible. And we're going to see that today. The people are in a terrible fix. They're in a terrible mess. Politically, they're in shambles. They're constantly being um, overrun by foreign, uh, foreign nations. Uh, and spiritually, we're going to see that today. That God's people are not where they need to be spiritually. Uh, furthermore, morally, the people are a mess. And at this point in the story, God seems dangerously far away. And silent. That's where we pick up this story. Because 1 Samuel tells the story of God's sovereignty, his power, his might, his providence, and his love and his care for people in their difficult circumstances. So these are really stories in God's sovereignty. Let me read 1 Samuel chapter 1, and I'll read through 19. 1 Samuel 1, verses 1 through 19. Hear God's good and kind word to you. There was a certain man, a Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country, Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Joram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. 
The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peniah. And Peniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Benaiah his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord. She used to provoke her, therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Let me just stop there. This is classic man. This is what a man would say. I, just classic. You, you can't make this up. He says to her, Am I not more to you than to ten sons? No, you're not. I mean, that's the point you're supposed to get from that. Verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting at the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help in understanding this word. Our Father, we thank you again for this time of worship. We thank you for this word. Lord, we thank you for loving individuals, loving people in the midst of their messes. Father, we are people who create messes of our own because of our sin because of our desire for things of this world and not for you. I pray, Father, that you remind us of your grace and your mercy through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I want to look at this passage uh, this morning in three ways. First of all, we're going to see a difficult family. Um, this is, I don't think you can deny this, in, the, in verses 1 through 8, we see a very difficult family situation. Nextly, in verses 9 through 17, we're going to see a difficult encounter. And then thirdly, we're going to see a difficult faith. So, a family, an encounter, and a faith. So, first of all, let's look at this family. 
I love the scriptures for this reason. It presents to us people as they really are. You don't get the whitewashing of people in the scriptures. And in very short order, we find out a lot of information about this family. What's happening with them? Well, uh, we have, first of all, this man, Elkanah. Um, he's, a, he's a fairly important man. We don't know a whole lot about him. But uh, here in 1 Samuel, we certainly do uh, get a lot of information about his family. Anytime you have a listing of a lineage, that means that he probably was from a fairly important family. So he had a good lineage. Um, we also see some positive things about him. Uh, he has a fair amount of personal piety, meaning... Uh, he was dedicated to going and worshiping the Lord. Uh, so every year, he was a, a spiritual um, leader of his family. He would rise up and go do what they meant, to, what they were commanded to do in the Old Testament. They would go to Shiloh, where the the temporary tabernacle was set up, and they would go make their sacrifices and they would celebrate and have a feast to the Lord once a year. So we see he did this. This was everything he, he did it over and over and over. Uh, and so you get a, a fairly good picture of. Um, of this man, Elkanah, except for you're told that he married two women. Um, This is going to become something that is more and more prevalent uh, because of the world that we live in. Um, There's a variety of things that are going on. uh, But what's going to be pushed on us more and more is that uh, polygamy or a man marrying uh, two people or polymory uh, and various ways that people want to be married to each other, you're going to be told that that is natural and good and that's an okay thing. And then what people will inevitably do because they say those things are good, they're going to point to the scriptures and they can say, look, they did it in the Old Testament so we can do it today. Um, how do we know these things are coming? Well, anytime uh, a station like TLC is going to put on uh, their um, uh, normal broadcasting, something like Sister Wives, that tries to normalize this type of behavior, you know it's coming. And very soon we're going to see people arguing for their rights to, ha- to marry and have multiple wives and those kinds of things. Caleb's nodding his head. He knows it's coming. And he's a lawyer, so you can trust that, right? Those things are coming. Well, uh, don't believe that argument that they did it in the Old Testament and therefore uh, it should be allowed over and over. God says you should not do this. This is not allowed. It's not a good thing for you to do. Every time this happens, uh, everywhere in the Old Testament, bad things come from it. Okay? So here's a man who has some good things and yet he's decided to marry two women. There might be a variety of reasons for that. Hannah more than likely was his first wife and she didn't have children. And so in order for him to have uh, more heirs, he decided to marry someone else, this other woman. And uh, lo and behold, she has children. Well, all of these things are created uh, uh, because of that. Uh, one of the good reasons why you shouldn't do this is because of the rivalry that comes from it. It's a terrible thing that happens, uh, and uh, the things that happen with these two women uh, are really just terrible. Uh, and you see Hannah largely uh, having to just kind of put up with what her husband does here um, in the bad decision that he made. Well, the next person we see, we see Elkanah, and then we see uh, Paniah. Um, what is she like? Well, right away you can tell she's a pretty terrible person. Um, nobody in here is named Paniah. I, I guarantee you, you would not name one of your beautiful little children, uh, daughters, Paniah, right? But you would name a child Hannah, right? There's a reason for that. She's a terrible, terrible person. What is she like? Well, um, in the ancient Near East, uh, and even to this day in multiple circles, even ones that we live in, women who have children obviously are put on a pedestal. 
Um, and so here's Paniah, and she has lots of children. She's constantly having children. Every time she turns around, she's having a child. And to them, they would think, well, here's a woman who is obviously favored by God. She is blessed by God. But look at that blessing of God, which isn't really a blessing to her. Look at what it, is, what it does. It turns her into a person. doesn't really turn her into it. She already is this way. She's rivalrous. She's arrogant. She's haughty. And she is not kind. Um, I mean, you see what she did to Hannah. Um, her rival, verse 6, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Um, and verse 7, so it went on year by year. As often as she went out to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Um, and over and over and over, she would just kind of drive this, this fork into Hannah that she didn't have any children. And obviously, she wasn't as loved or favored. One of the things that you see from this woman is that she trusted in herself she believed, she truly believed that it was because of her goodness that the Lord had opened her womb. She believed in herself and she trusted in herself. Next you get this person, Hannah. Well, there are some good things that we read about Hannah. Uh, she is loved by Elkanah, which is good. Um, that's a good thing. Here's a husband who loves his wife. Uh, he loves her dearly. Uh, and yet she is horribly oppressed by Paniah. And we see over and over, uh, twice in one, actually one verse, that we're told, um, or twice in the space of one verse, that the Lord had closed her womb. I want to read that again in verses 6 and 7, just so this is hammered home to you, why she didn't have children. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year, as often she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke, provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. But over and over, you see that the Lord had closed her womb. It wasn't because Hannah was not a good person. It wasn't because Hannah had done something wrong. It was because it was the Lord's decision to close Hannah's womb. What do we learn from this? Well, in this very disgusting picture uh, of this family, we see some good things and some bad things. Well, it's good news to us. One of the things that you have to take away from the scriptures is that God delights to work in the midst of families. God delights to work in the midst of families. He doesn't merely work according to individuals and how individuals operate, but he works in families. And what are these families like? Well, over and over you see that these families are broken. These families are terrible. These families are a mess. Why is that good news? It's good news because... Guess what? Your family is a mess. It is. And if you're in denial about that, just come and see me, and then we can list out the ways that your family is a mess. It's not good news that your family is a mess, but it's good news that the Lord is at work in the midst of the messes that we create. Here's a man who was trying to do uh, the best thing that he knew how to do. He went and got another wife. To have children, and yet it creates nothing but strife and problems. We assume that God delights to work in the midst and through good people. Here's what the scriptures tell us. There's no good people. There's only one good person that ever lived, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And God delights to work in the midst of us. Broken, nasty, terrible people. He does it for the sake of His glory. He does it in the midst of weakness to show forth His goodness more and more and more. So the good news to us is that God uses and works through 
broken families. Next, we see a difficult encounter. This is in verses 9 through 18. Hannah, um, she goes to the right place. Uh, I'll just point this out to you. If you want to look um, uh, to a, a corresponding story that is very much like this one, you can look to Jacob. And Rachel, uh, you can look to that story and to see what Jacob and Rachel did. Um, uh, when Rachel wanted children, she gave Jacob her uh, her um, handmaid or her her maid uh, to have children, and that created all sorts of problems. Hannah stands in stark contrast to Rachel because Hannah goes to the right place. She goes to the Lord, and what does she do in verses nine and ten? Um, out of her deep distress, she prays to God. Um, And it's really quite a prayer. Look at verse 11. Um, She says, O Lord of hosts. Um, This is uh, uh, Shiloh. How many of you could find Shiloh on a map? If I gave you a map, how many of you could find Shiloh on a map? None of you could because Shiloh is literally still, it's a faraway place, almost in the middle of nowhere in Jerusalem. If you were going to go take a uh, trip to Jerusalem today, you probably are to Israel, you wouldn't probably go to Shiloh because it's really an insignificant place. But here's a woman in this fairly insignificant place, and what does she pray? She prays, O Lord of hosts, God of God, the one who was over everything, Do you see her her logic in this? She actually believes that the God who created the heavens and the earth is listening to this woman who doesn't have any children in the middle of nowhere. That's great theology, that God is a God who cares for insignificant people. You see that Hannah's deep distress leads to even deeper devotion to Yahweh. It doesn't cause her to run away from God. It causes her to run to God. And she says... O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, then I will give to to your servant a son. Uh, That word son is the word male seed. This traces all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, uh, 15, the idea of a male seed. She understands that God works through families, that God is bringing about salvation through a male seed. And she says, I will, if you give me a male seed, then what am I going to do? Then I will give him to the Lord. I will not keep him for myself. I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life. And she says, and no, all the days of his life. And then no razor shall touch his head. This is a Nazarite vow. You can read about that in the Old Testament, other places. She is completely and utterly giving her son over to the Lord. Now, that's a good thing, and we would expect in this story for something good to come out of that. Um, If I heard about the prayers of somebody praying this way in this kind of devotion, I would certainly laud and applaud that if I heard of this kind of thing. And yet, here is the spiritual leader of Israel in verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed observed her mouth. Uh, She is pouring out her heart to the Lord in her deep distress. And what does Hannah get for all of this distress and her care and her pouring out and all of this sort of stuff? She gets this old man, Eli, who thinks she's drunk. Okay, No good deed goes un- unpunished, right? So Eli thinks that she's drunk. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli rebuked her then at that point and said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. Eli was probably used 
to Israelites coming up to Shiloh to celebrate uh, and yet not really wanting to worship. And so he was used to drunk people. And so he lashes out to Hannah. But what does she do? She says, no, she begs for grace and understanding. She says, do not regard your, your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And so um, what she does there, it's interesting. <clears throat> she doesn't feel entitled at this point. She doesn't lash out herself to Eli, who misunderstands what's happening. Here's a woman who, out of her deep distress, doesn't say, you should treat me better than this. She begs for mercy. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. She doesn't get angry. She doesn't get mad. She simply asks for grace. She's mournful and she's meek. And again, I'll just point you to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 to see... Uh, The attitude that Christ desires for us to have. To be mournful and meek before the Lord. How does Eli respond in verse 17? He says, go in peace, first of all. Now we hear go in peace and we think, oh, well, what that means is to go um, and just kind of be happy. To go and just, well, just be okay with things the way that they are. But that's not what peace means. Peace is the Hebrew word for shalom. Uh, Shalom does not merely mean um, just go away and not be angry anymore. It means completeness. It means wholeness. And so when Eli says go in peace, he means go in fulfillment, go in completeness, go in satisfaction. That's important for Hannah because she doesn't have what she thinks she really needs. She doesn't have a child. Eli doesn't say here go and have a child and be happy. He says, go and be complete. This completeness only comes from the Lord. It comes from a covenant God who gives himself to his people so that they can be satisfied with him. So that's the first thing that he says, go in peace. Go in the satisfaction of the Lord. He doesn't say, go and have a child. He says, go and be satisfied in the Lord. And then the second thing that he says is, And may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Uh, What we tend to do is we tend to read there and say, well, then Hannah's going to get what she wants. But that's not what Eli is doing. Eli is not promising that she is going to have a child. This is not a promise of fulfillment. This is, though, a promise that God would hear her prayers and that God would answer her prayer. And what this is, it's pointing her to the reality that even if she doesn't get what she wants, that she can be absolutely fulfilled and satisfied in the Lord. And that's good news for us, because the reality is, and you and I understand this, as we go about our lives trying to be fulfilled and satisfied with the things of the world, you and I recognize that we cannot be satisfied with the things of the world. We will try to shove in our hearts as many things as we can that will try to make us happy. And what we are reminded of here is that the only thing that will make us happy is that the Lord of hosts has made us so that we can know Him and be in covenant with Him and be fulfilled by Him. So we see a difficult encounter here. And then finally, verses 18 and 19, a difficult faith. 
I purposely ended in 19 and didn't go into 20 for this reason. Because what we see in Hannah in verse 18 is even when she hasn't gotten what she wanted, she responds in faith. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. What does she do? Hannah humbles herself even more. She calls herself the the servant of Eli who had just disparaged her. And she displays her faith in Yahweh. What did she do? She left. She left that spot where she was praying to go do what? To go be a wife. She had faith in the Lord and His goodness and she left to go do the things that she knew she was called to do. Further, she ate If any of you have ever gone through any kind of depression, any kind of sad time, you know what it's like to not want to eat. And Hannah had been through that. She had been in the midst of this celebration when everyone was eating. And she couldn't eat. But here she goes away, satisfied in the Lord. And what is she able to do? She's able to eat. And then thirdly, we're told that she was no longer sad. Did she get what she wanted? Did she get what she prayed for? Not yet. And yet she was no longer sad. Because her faith was in Yahweh. She had faith even though she had not yet gotten what she wanted. She continued in her marital duties. Uh, what, this is what, what's amazing in verse 19. They rose early in the morning. They worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. She continued to, to do her marital duties. She accepted the love of Elkanah. As terrible of a guy as as he was. Remember, he said, am I not more to you than ten sons? No, he's not. And yet she accepted his love. And then furthermore, she put up with Paniah. In those short little sentences, you see a woman responding in faith to God. And then you get this very good news at at the end there. And the Lord remembered her. This is the good news of God's remembering His people. Um, He remembers the promises, His faithfulness, the things that He has promised to His people. What has He promised to His covenant people? He's promised to save them. He's promised to be faithful to them. He's promised to provide for them and to protect them. So that this covenant God cares for our needs and our wants. So that this God who created the heavens and the earth, who stands above sovereignly everything in this world, we can go to Him and we can pray and we can ask for things from Him. This is really quite an incredible story. And we end it there in verse 19. Hannah has not yet got what she's prayed for. She's gotten a lot better than that. She's gotten satisfaction with Yahweh. That's what we need because the things of this world will not satisfy over and over. Let me conclude very quickly by just giving you three points. Um, Yahweh is still sovereign over this world. The, the God that Hannah prayed to, the one that she trusted in, is still sovereign over things like Ebola. She's so, he's sovereign over things like growing discontentment and the wars that you hear about and the rumors of war and all the blood moons and all of those things that you keep on hearing about. God is still sovereign even over things like Ole Miss and Mississippi State being number one and number three in the polls. I mean, my goodness. We live in that kind of world, and God is sovereign over it, as hard as it is for me to say that. The good news is that God has not forgotten His promises to us. He has not forgotten His promise to continually love us and be faithful to us. 
because the Lord remembers. Not only that, God has specific concern for his people. The Lord of hosts, the God of God, very God of very God, the thing that we talked about uh, that, we, that we say we believe in, um, the God that we believe in is the God that hears us when we go to him and we pray through the Lord Jesus Christ. For Hannah, what that did for her is it caused deeper devotion to the Lord. What does it do for you? If you see the bigness of God, what does that do for your heart when you go to him for things like your needs and wants every day? And then Hannah's suffering, and she suffered here. It points us to the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no salvation outside of suffering. You and I need to hear that. Jesus was not able to secure our salvation by not going to the cross. He had to go to the cross. And in the fire of Hannah's suffering, she came to see the bigness of God. And in the fire of Christ and his suffering, he actually secured our salvation. He gave us the right to be called the children of God. You and I need to understand that through the suffering that we go through, through the trials, through the tribulations that God brings into our life sovereignly... He's causing us to be satisfied less and less with the things of the world and more and more satisfied with himself. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this day. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he suffered for us. I pray, Father, that in our suffering, that we would see your sovereignty at work, that we would cling to the promises that we would cling to your faithfulness, to your goodness for us. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.